You are now listening to the October 7th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. Hello, listeners. This is Nicole from Let's Read the Bible. Do you know what the term dichotomy means? It refers to dividing something into two parts, like black and white, living and non-living, or things that are alive and things that are dead. As a matter of fact, the world doesn't like dichotomies. It doesn't like dividing everything into black and white. Especially in our day and age, they believe that they need to respect diversity and inclinations. But the Bible appears to use dichotomy a lot, which the world doesn't like. It talks about believers and non-believers, righteous people and wicked people, and wise people and foolish people. We think of ourselves as believers, righteous and wise. Of course, we are righteous and believers before the Lord as we are saved by the blood of Jesus. However, we need to be humble and examine whether we are wise or foolish. In the book of Proverbs, it explains what kind of person is wise or foolish, righteous or wicked. It can be a good standard for us to examine whether we are wise, foolish, righteous, or wicked. Today, and in the coming weeks, let's read Proverbs together and examine ourselves. In Proverbs 1.7 it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is the main theme of Proverbs. When Solomon wrote Proverbs, what was on his mind? He wrote this book with the earnest hope that his children, as well as the people of Israel, would not turn away from God's word, become foolish, and ultimately lead to destruction. Unfortunately, most of the Jews chose the foolish path, despising wisdom and instruction, despite the words of Proverbs. Starting from Proverbs 1 verse 20 to 33, it says that wisdom is crying aloud in the street to those who despise her. Foolish people take delight in their own arrogance and hate knowledge. Even when wisdom showed them the way of knowledge, they did not want to hear it. They despised instruction and would not accept rebuke. As a result, they ate the fruit of their own ways, became satisfied with their own schemes, and led themselves down the path of destruction. If you were to hear the voice of wisdom calling out, what kind of reaction would you show? Will you willingly receive her cries with gratitude? Have you ever despised God's wisdom and discipline? Has your own thinking ever been prioritized over God's word? Have you been more afraid of people's opinions than of fearing the Lord? As we start the new year, through the words of Proverbs and the cries of wisdom, 
I want you to examine my own spirituality. Let's read the words of Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 33. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know the wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand the proverb and the saying, the words of the wise and the riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Shoal, let us swallow them alive and whole, like those who go down to the pit. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof, Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. 
for the simple are killed by their turning way, and the complacency of fools destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. Let's read the Bible. We have just read chapter 1, verses 1 to 33. See you next week. Now, oh my soul, for his love.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Gospel and Life. Today's topic is the gospel. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Timothy. One more week on the gospel. We've said the gospel is not moral conformity, religion, neither is it self-discovery, secularism. It's something else. And there are three results of the gospel that will flow into our lives. This week, I'd like to look at this passage in Isaiah and recognize there are three results of the gospel that flow into our lives. The gospel brings restructuring of your heart, removal of your sin, and reversal of your values. Let's take a look at these three things. The first, the restructuring of your heart, actually comes from the second page under the image of the barren woman. This part of the prophecy of Isaiah is as the Lord speaking, starts off in a startling way. God says, sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song and shout for joy. We gotta stop right away. Because if we're gonna understand the message of this passage, we have to ask ourselves, what was the significance of childbearing in those ancient cultures? Now let me put it in a nutshell. The more children you had, the better your family did. The more children you had, the more your land produced, the more your shop produced, because you had more labor, the more income you had, and therefore, your number of children completely determined the fate of your family, its status in society, its security economically, completely. And secondly, if when you got old, you didn't have adult children to live with, you literally starved to death. And if you wanted to have three adult children when you got to old age, you needed to have about eight to ten, because that's all the number that would live to maturity. And then thirdly, if your whole tribe, if your whole nation wasn't having lots and lots of children, the next tribe, the tribe next door would grow in population more, and therefore they'd have a larger army, and they would come and conquer you. You can see, if a bunch of women were around a, a well, you know, drawing water, and one of them said, I think I only want to have two or three children, the rest of them would say, do you have a death wish or something? And not only that, they would say, this isn't just about you, it's about all of us. Unless you have as many children as you possibly can, you're dooming us economically, militarily, politically. And therefore, a woman who bore children in those ancient cultures was a national hero. But the natural tendency of the human heart is to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. And in ancient cultures and in non-Western traditional cultures today, the family is the ultimate thing. It is what we've been calling, essentially, in those cultures, an idol. And therefore, women who either don't have children because they're not married or can't have children because of some physical impediment felt worthless and were regarded as worthless. And so if you want a perfect example of that, you go into the book of Genesis where Rachel, the wife of Jacob, is seeking to have children and she can't have children and she says, give me children or I die. And that about sums it up in those cultures. Now, some of you saying, oh boy, that's right, I've, I've, I know about this. Those ancient cultures really oppressed women. And you're right. But I'm glad you brought that up, actually. The reason I'm glad you brought that up is it gives me the occasion to ask you a question. Why do you think, and I'm trying to, let me be as sensitive as I possibly can. Yes, th those ancient cultures oppressed women. Let me ask you one question. Why do you think 
that in those cultures, women were not troubled with eating disorders at all. Why do you think that in their, those cultures, women were not troubled with eating disorders? Why am I asking you that? I'm trying to make a point. The Bible says that all cultures are fallen and that all cultures oppress because here's what they do. Every single culture puts in front of men and women certain objects and says, if you don't have them, you're nothing. If you don't have them, you have no worth. If you don't have them, you have no significance. If you don't have them, your, your existence isn't justified. You must have them. And of course, ancient cultures and traditional cultures today make idols out of, how do I say it? They have collectivist idols. They say to women, your worth depends completely on the family. You've got to have a family. You've got to be in a family. But modern Western culture has individualistic idols. And what they say, what modern cultures say, is your worth is completely dependent on your individual assets, looks, career, money. If you don't have, every culture is saying, if you don't have that, you're nothing. When Rachel says, give me children or I die, when she says, childlessness means psychological and social death, it's very telling. Because if you build your identity on anything more than God, and you fail to get it, it's psychological and sociological death. And every culture that ever existed and exists today is telling you to build your identity on something. And therefore, every culture is going to press you, crush you into the ground. Because every culture is cooperating with the part of our heart that wants to be its own savior and lord, wants to justify itself. Every culture is, is uh, therefore crushing us into the ground in different ways. And it's almost impossible when everybody else is going after these objects not to go along with them and be just as enslaved and crushed as everyone else in the culture is. I said almost impossible because God says there's a way out. There's a way to emotional inner freedom and cultural freedom. And what is it? Well, let's go back to the text. Here's what God says. He says, into this ancient culture, sing, O barren woman. You who never bore a child. Sing, O barren woman. Do you know what is so culturally radical? What he is calling women to do. He's calling women to an inner emotional freedom from shame and a cultural freedom from external oppressive structures. He's saying, I can give you a freedom from men, from family, from what your culture tells you. I can get you to sing without children. In other words, look at the paradox. He says, sing, O barren woman, you who bore a child, never bore a child, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. And what this is saying is, now it's deliberately paradoxical. It's saying, the woman who never had any children has more children than the woman who has had a lot of children. That doesn't make sense, but it does make sense when you realize that children represent value and worth and beauty and honor. And God is saying there's a value and worth and beauty and honor available apart from children. This was utterly radical in that culture. Well, what is the source of that? He says, here it is. Your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. Here Isaiah sums up what Paul said in this incredibly beautiful image and metaphor. The Bible says every other religion says life is about trying, 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 trying hard to live up to standards. And if you really try hard at the end of your life, you'll have a positive verdict and you'll go to heaven or you'll meet God or you'll have nirvana or something. Every other religion says try, 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 try hard. 
live up, get a good verdict, and you're in. But Christianity is absolutely different than that. Christianity is a legal standing. It's a standing. It's coming into something now. It's being united to God through Christ. And the perfect metaphor for it is marriage. Why? Because on the one hand, marriage is the most intense love relationship possible, and yet it's also a legal status, which the moment before you take your vows, you don't have at all. And the second you take your vows, you have completely. It's not like you try, try, try. Your maker is your husband. And this is what Christianity offers, something that no other religion dares to offer, and says that when you join to God through Jesus Christ, the verdict is in. Now you have the applause, the praise, the delight of God. No one else even begins to try to offer such a thing. So what is God saying in this passage? Here's what he's saying. He says, don't look to anything else. I can be your value. And what greater value could you possibly have than to be delighted in and sacrificed for by the maker of the universe? He says, look at all these other things, good things that you're turning into ultimate things. Don't try to get your value and your beauty and your honor and your significance from them. Don't do that. You need freedom from them so you can love them. And you'll find that freedom only when your heart rests in me the way you rest in bed at the end of a long day. Only when your heart savors me the way you savor a glass of cold water in the middle of a desert. But if you have that, then you have a completely different sort of identity. You have cultural freedom. You have emotional freedom. You can live in your culture, and every culture says these are good things. Every culture has its themes. Every culture has its emphases. Every culture has its strengths. But they won't enslave you anymore. They won't crush you. You'll be restructured in your heart and your identity. Well, now, some people say that's very radical, but I think I believe in God. I think I believe in Christianity, and I don't know that I've ever undergone anything quite like that. Okay, let's keep going. The restructuring of the heart flows from an understanding of how the gospel also tells you about the removal of your sin. And as we looked to the image of the barren woman to understand the restructuring of the heart, we looked to, in the first part, page one, the image of the suffering servant to understand the removal of our sin. This passage is very famous, but I also want you to know it probably is the most shocking and controversial passage in all of the Hebrew Scripture, in all of the Old Testament. It has been fought about and it has been debated for centuries. And the reason is because it seems to be so shocking, because it seems to contradict all sorts of other things in the rest of the Bible. Let's take a look at it. First of all, it's shocking because of the violence of this death. The violence of this death. All through the Old Testament, there have been prophecies about a Messiah, a messianic figure, someone who's going to come and bring God's peace back to the world, someone who's going to come and bring God's justice back to the world. And there, all the way from the book of Exodus, all the way up through the early chapters of Isaiah, we see this prince, this Mashiach, this anointed prince, this person, this figure, who's in prophecy, going to return. Now you get, though, to the middle of Isaiah. You get into chapter 40 and afterwards, and the servant of the Lord appears. 
And this person again appears and salvation, he brings salvation to the nations. And this has been spoken of in chapter 42 and 47 and 50. So there are a number of these, these prophecies about this servant of the Lord who's going to bring salvation to the nations. But when we get to chapter 53, suddenly the most appalling thing happens. The Messiah, the servant of the Lord, who is supposed to bring an end to violence is instead the victim of violence who's supposed to bring an end to injustice, is instead the victim of injustice. Look at verse 8. By oppression and justice, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. And that cut off from the land of the living is a Hebrew term that means a violent death. And verse 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. It's a verb that means to be run through. It means to have something come in the front of your body and go out the back. It is a term that describes the most painful and excruciating possible death. Now, this seems to contradict everything else we know about the Messiah. It seems to contradict everything else that we see. How could this be the Messiah? How could the Messiah possibly bring an end to violence and bring an end to injustice and bring an end to the brokenness of the world by being broken to bits himself? That makes no sense at all. So that's the first thing. The first thing that's shocking is the violence of this death. The second thing that's shocking Even more shocking is the vicariousness of this death. Look at verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord make his life a guilt offering. Whoa, stop. Wait, what? The Bible talks a lot about offerings, guilt offerings. In the tabernacle, in the temple, they were animal sacrifices. When someone was guilty, you did an animal sacrifice and an animal was slain and offered up and that took away the guilt. This is all through the Bible. But one thing is absolutely and totally clear in the Bible that never, ever, ever, ever was there to be a human sacrifice. Human sacrifice was in no uncertain terms condemned. Everywhere else in the Bible. And yet that's what this is. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Our punishment has gone to him. His peace has come to us. He's a guilt offering. And yet the Bible says everywhere you must not do human sacrifice. So first, the violence of the death is shocking. Secondly, the vicariousness of the death is shocking. And last of all, the voluntariness of the death is shocking. Look at verse 4. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Literally, that means he picked them up and put them on himself. He's voluntarily dying. But everywhere in the Bible, suicide's a sin. So this contradicts what the Bible says about the power of the Messiah. This contradicts what the Bible says about the the, uh, forbiddenness of human sacrifice. It it contradicts what the Bible says about the sinfulness of suicide. How do we make sense of this? Now, some people have really tried very hard to make sense of it by saying it's all a symbol. It's figurative. It's poetry. And this servant here is a poetic, symbolic personification of the sufferings of the nation, of the sufferings of the people. This is just talking about the people of God, the the nation of God, and how they suffered. Okay, but the trouble, there's a huge trouble with this. Even poetry still has to have a point. And what is the point of this passage? The point of this passage is that the servant suffers instead of the nation. The servant suffers so the nation doesn't have to suffer. And so if the servant is just a symbol for the nation, how can the nation suffer so the nation won't suffer? How can the nation suffer in place of the nation? No. This is a human being. This is an individual human being. But who? How can we make any sense out of it? Well, it all depends on who this is. Who is it? Centuries later, after this was written, 
The book of Acts, chapter 8, tells us a story, an account of something that happened many years later. It tells us about an African, an Ethiopian, and we're told that he had gone all the way to Jerusalem in order to worship God, and now he was coming back reading the scroll of Isaiah. Now, even that little introduction tells us an awful lot about what happened to this man. Because first of all, in those days, even today I'm sure, but in those days, the trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem was enormously long, incredibly dangerous, and terribly difficult. And the only possible reason an individual would go all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem in order to worship is if this person was deeply spiritually dissatisfied that he was searching, he was seeking, that there was a great spiritual need, longing, emptiness, let's say. And the first thing we know is that. The second thing we know is now that he's on his way back, he would have been turned away. Do you know why he would have been turned away? He was a eunuch. And the Mosaic law made it very clear that nothing deformed and nothing diseased could go into the presence of God. And this man had been castrated and anyone who had been castrated was absolutely forbidden to go into the temple. After all those miles, after all that way, he went and he was turned away, unfit, unclean. The reason he was castrated was because he was an official. And in those days, in almost in all of the uh, kingdoms, if you were an official who was going to work in close quarters with the royal family, the requirement was castration. And, of course, it was a terrible price to pay, in a, a culture in which having descendants meant everything. And maybe that was one of the reasons why he was spiritually searching. I don't know, but he'd been turned away. And now he's on his way back, and he's reading the book of Isaiah. And Acts 8 tells us that Philip, a minister, a missionary, finds this man, and this is what happened. We're told, then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, this was the passage that the eunuch was reading. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a lamb before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Imagine how electrifying this must have been for a man who'd just been turned away from the house of God because he couldn't have descendants. And yet here's this servant of the Lord who's voluntarily taking this condition on. And so the text goes on. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. It's Jesus. And you know what? That's the answer to all the riddles. If this figure, this suffering servant, is the Son of God come down from heaven in human form, that begins to unravel the riddles. First of all, that shows this is not the sin of suicide. You know why? You and I, we did not give ourselves life. And therefore, we can't take our own lives. Our lives don't belong to us. They belong to God. But God's life is his own. And he laid it down for us. And secondly, it explains the vicariousness of it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has written, forgiveness is a form of suffering. Do you know what that means? If someone has really, really wronged you, you've got to forgive them. You've got to forgive them. If you don't forgive them, you'll be 
eaten up with bitterness and you'll become part of the endless cycle of retaliation that makes the world the mess of a place that it is. So you've got to forgive. But Bonhoeffer's right. Forgiveness is agonizing. When you want to pay somebody back, but you don't pay them back, you'll pay. When you want to make them suffer, but you don't make them suffer because you're trying to forgive them, you suffer. Real forgiveness always entails suffering. There's no such thing as forgiveness without suffering, not if it's, you've really been wrong. And if that's true for us, with our minuscule sense and flawed sense of justice, how much more would it be true of God? And the Ethiopian eunuch realized this is God suffering in order to forgive us. If God was not going to pay us back, he had to pay, just like with us. And when the eunuch realized God underwent a violent, voluntary, vicarious death to forgive him and receive him, it changed his life. And here's why it changed his life. I want you to think about this. We've said the gospel is not moral conformity or self-discovery. It's not moralism or relativism. Because, you see, moralistic people have a God who's sort of holy and demanding. And the way you have a relationship with this God is you try very, very hard. But when people who have a God who's basically holy and demanding and they're pleasing through moral behavior, when they think of their relationship with God, it doesn't move them to tears. It doesn't galvanize them, electrify them. It doesn't change them from the inside out. They just say, yeah, yeah, of course I know God. I, I work very hard, you know. And then there's people who think, you know, I, if there is a God, I believe he loves everyone. He excludes no one. He accepts everyone. Yeah, I have a relationship with God. I'm spiritual because God loves everyone. But if, you, if that's what you believe in a God who just accepts and loves everyone, you know, no matter what, if that's what you believe, when you think of your relationship with God, it doesn't galvanize you, it doesn't move you to tears, it doesn't electrify, it doesn't change you from the inside out. You say, well, of course, he loves everybody. But the biblical God, the God of the gospel, the God of Isaiah, the God of the African eunuch, is infinitely holy and infinitely loving. And that's the reason why God's grace is costly. It's so costly, that's why it's so moving. In other words, God's grace is infinitely costly and melts your heart when you realize that God was so holy, he couldn't shrug evil off, but he was so loving, he couldn't just punish us for it. And not until you're humbled down into the dust, because he's so holy, he had to die for you, and not until you're affirmed and valued into the sky, because he loves you so much that he was glad to die for you, Will you be humbled out of the pride that makes you look down on other people? And will you be affirmed out of the self-hatred that makes you look down on yourself at the same time? In other words, only when you see what it cost God to remove your sin will you finally have the death of all inferiority and the death of all superiority. And you'll be able to have freedom, the restructured identity that no one else has. It's impossible to have it any other way. Sure, if you're a moralist, then you feel good, you know, when you're living up, but you're proud. Or you feel bad when you're not living up, you know, but you hate yourself. But here, this is proud is gone, and self-hatred is gone, because the gospel says you're so humbled because you're a sinner, and you're so bold because you're absolutely loved at the same time. It gives you a radically new identity. It's the removal of sin and the costliness of it when the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is intellectually coherent and existentially melting to your heart, that's when the changes happen. And that comes only when you see 
God is not just holy and demanding, or not just loving and accepting everybody, but infinitely holy and infinitely loving at once, and therefore his grace is costly. When that melts your heart, that changes you. That will create that restructuring of heart. And one more thing it will create, and that is a complete reversal of values. Very briefly, I must say that we not only have, out of the flowing of the removal of sin, in chapter 53 comes chapter 54, and we have two images in chapter 54. A barren woman who is singing for joy and a deserted city, an afflicted city. This is talking about a city that is poor, that is devastated, and God says, I will rebuild your walls and I will rebuild your gates, and I will rebuild your battlements and your towers, and I'll rebuild them out of sapphire and out of rubies and out of diamonds. Now, imagine a city like that. Do you realize that a city that would, would have been made out of diamonds and sapphires and rubies would have been, first of all, absolutely militarily and politically secure because nobody could break down walls made of that. Secondly, it would have been incredibly economically prosperous because it would be the most valuable and wealthy city in the world. And then thirdly, it would also be a, a place of aesthetic beauty. It would, it's, it's, it's artistic life and it's economic life and it's political life would be, would be flourishing. And of course, this has never happened, we don't think, right? I mean, you know, Jerusalem was rebuilt after the exile, but it wasn't built like that. What is Isaiah foreseeing? You have to go to the book of Revelation where it depicts the end of time, and we see coming out of heaven this city with sapphires and rubies and diamonds at its base. And what is that vision all about? What is Isaiah talking about? What is the book of Revelation talking about? It's talking about the fact that at the end of time, God's heavenly power will come down to renew the world, create the world to be the way God meant it to be. He didn't want disease. He didn't want suffering. He didn't want death. He didn't want poverty. He didn't want racism. He didn't want injustice. He didn't want any of those things, and in the end, he's going to make the world renewed the way it ought to be. How can we participate in that? Through the gospel. Because why do you think God always seems to be working with eunuchs and barren women? Why Sarah over Hagar? Why stupid Jacob over Esau? Why little David over all the big strapping older brothers? Why? Why does he always do that? Here's how one writer put it. Christ wins our salvation through losing. He achieves power through weakness and service. He comes to wealth by giving everything away. Those who receive his salvation also are not the strong and the accomplished, but those who admit they are weak and lost. Salvation, because it is achieved through weakness and it is received through weakness, pulls off a complete reversal of the values of this world with regard to power, recognition, status, and wealth. When we understand that we are saved by sheer grace through Christ, we stop seeking salvation in these things, in recognition, status, wealth, and power. The reversal of the cross, the grace of God, therefore liberates us from the bondage to the power of material things and worldly status in our lives. The gospel, therefore, creates a people with an upside-down set of values, a whole alternate way of being human, racial and class superiority, cruel of money and power at the expense of others, yearning for popularity and recognition, all these things are marks of living in the world and are the opposite of the mindset of people whose lives have been changed by the gospel. When you see what it costs to remove your sin, when you get that restructuring of your identity, it will lead to the reversal of values or you haven't really had that restructuring of identity. You look at people of other races differently than you did before because you've got cultural freedom. You don't make an idol out of your culture. 
You look at your own money differently than you did before. You don't need to have lots of it anymore because that's not how you get your security and your significance. You start to pour yourself out to bring about bit by bit by bit the city that God is building and eventually will bring to completion at the end of time. What if we really were a church filled with people who have all three of these results in our lives, huh? The reversal of values, the removal of sin, and the, uh, rest, the renovation of our identity? What would we look like? Some people would say, oh, that's a conservative church because of all that talk about substitutionary atonement and, you know, all that doctrinal stuff. And other people say, no, 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 it's a liberal church. Look at all that talk about social justice and concern for the poor. And other people say, it must be a charismatic church because look at all that love and all that singing O Baron Woman stuff. You know what I really love? It doesn't say think O Baron Woman. You know, now you know the truth. Sing, artistically drill it into your heart until it catches fire. We'd be all of those things. We'd be conservative. We'd be charismatic. We'd be liberal. It means generous. We'd be all of those things and more because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602 866 8999. That's 602 866 8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Today, we're continuing in our study of 2 Thessalonians, and this is quite a portion of Scripture, and there's so many different references that I'm going to be sharing, and a lot of Scripture and a lot of information that I would encourage you certainly to look in your Bibles, you know, but also just listen to and maybe take a note on the reference and go back and look at it later. If it gets confusing, don't worry about it. There's a lot here. You can always listen to it later and figure out what I was saying, right? There's a lot here, and yet I believe it's understandable, and I believe the Lord wants us to understand it. Indeed, who this letter is written to is written to a church of believers that are less than a year old in the faith. And Paul had already shared the things that I'm going to share with you today before with them when they were three weeks old in the faith. So the idea that someone can't take the deep truths is not true unless there's sin in the way or they've been hardened or covered, in a sense, with their sin where they're not able to see and respond. So if our hearts are right, we should be able to understand what God intended and yet don't allow the amount of what we go through to distract you. Today we're going to see the ultimate sign of the day of the Lord, and that's the abomination of desolation revealed. Now, there are lots of ministries out there, lots of prophecy ministries, whatever it might be, who are continually talking about the Antichrist and the abomination of desolation. That's all they do, is they tantalize believers' flesh through the possibilities of the future, or whatever that might be. But they do that to manipulate you to get excited about end times. And that's not the reason why God shares these things for us, because Christ has defeated our enemies and will defeat them. He shares it that we would focus on Christ, that we would know we are secure in Him no matter how difficult those situations arise. And so we don't sit here and do this, but today we're coming to one of those passages that they're always talking about. And so keep this in mind, it's not for us to get tantalized or focused on, but for us to recognize who the victor is, and not to be discouraged during the temporal difficulties that come for following Jesus Christ. As I mentioned already, this book is written to a group of new believers. They have come to faith. They've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven who delivers them from the wrath to come. The apostle Paul was with them for three weeks And he shared truth with them concerning Christ, concerning the future, concerning who they were in Christ and what they needed to do in their following of Christ. 
And then the Apostle Paul, because of some threats, as we're going to see today, needed to share another letter to them. They were being persecuted greatly for their faith in Jesus. And there were false teachers who were putting out a false message as though what they were going through was actually the day of the Lord. And the Apostle Paul had shared with them in the first letter that that's not going to happen for them. They're not destined for rest. So they are on the verge of being quickly shaken up or troubled. And that's what false teaching does to the church. We get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine rather than standing firm in the truth. And so the Apostle Paul is going to remind them of the truth. And we're going to look at it. And we have so much more that we can add into it from the Scripture so that we can have a good understanding of what is going on. Well, in this book already, he has encouraged them in the midst of their suffering because they're suffering greatly, but God hasn't missed a beat. Those who are persecuting them will be taken care of by the living God. Those who do not know the Lord and have not believed or obeyed the gospel, their end is sure. And they may seem to be getting away with it, but they won't. And we saw that our ultimate relief comes when Christ comes. Our ultimate release of suffering comes when He comes. And we should be encouraged. And the Apostle Paul prayed towards the end of chapter 1 that we would walk in the context of our calling and live up to that in a sense in Christ and that all our desires for goodness and for the work of faith would be amply fulfilled by the Lord. Tremendous, wonderful reality. Then we got into chapter 2, in which we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the first portion that we saw last week, and we're going to move into part of the rest of it together. So let's turn together again to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to be looking today at verses 3 through 5. Now I'm going to start back with what we focused on last week, and then we'll move into what we barely touched on, and we'll expand upon that today. Verse 1, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect the day of the Lord has come. And here's our passage. Let no one deceive you in any way, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember while I was still with you? I was telling you these things. Now, I want to keep reading for context, but that's where we're going to stop. But I want to read because everywhere we read about this bad guy, always nearby is his defeat. Every passage we're going to see, and we want to see that too. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Praise the Lord for that. That is the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan, with all power, signs, and false wonders, with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be judged, who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning. 
for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the summary, which applies to our passage, it's really the application. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. That's the apostles, Apostle Paul. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. So obviously there's a lot to talk about here, and there is so much in Scripture about the end times. We don't need some person telling us all the things that could and might and should and would happen. We have the reality of what God says will happen and it is all in the context of our enemy being defeated. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul said, Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse. And John shares in 1 John that many deceivers have gone out into the world. Peter said in 2 Peter, False prophets also arose among the people just as false teachers among you. The reality is in the church, there's going to be bad guys and women who rise up and share things that contradict the truth of God, very subtly, very wickedly. There are those who will secretly introduce destructive heresies to their own destruction. But we need to stand firm in what we've been taught, and for that we need to be taught. So the Apostle Paul has taught them in the first three weeks of their faith, but he is also reminding them within this year of their faith about what's going on, because they are being tempted to be discouraged because someone is saying something that's not true. Here's what we saw last week. And remember, we're not to let anyone deceive us, but we should stand firm in the Word. So we saw last week. Now we request you, brethren, verse 1, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. The first thing is, We have a request, he says. We're asking something of you. And it's regarding to our gathering together and the coming of the Lord. That's what he says it's regarding. That's the subject, okay? And then he says, within that, that you wouldn't be quickly shaken from your composure, disturbed. And then he talks about being from a false message or whatever it might be. Now, we talked about this last week. The subject here is the rapture of the church. And you say, how can I say that? Well, we looked at it last week. Now, the term rapture is not in Scripture. Those who would twist the Word of God and be against what God says will say, well, that's not in the Word of God. Well, it's not. It's a Latin translation of the Greek word harpazo, which is in Scripture. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which they had been written to earlier, and it talks about the Lord Jesus coming and forcibly grabbing us and taking us to be with Him in the air. And we saw that. And I spent a lot of time talking about that last time. You can listen to those. You can go back and get First Thessalonians 4, that CD, and that will have the information too, or go online. But you see, God made it clear that he was going to come for us. And we see that in First Thessalonians 3, verse 13 to 18, and John 14, 1 through 6. And these Thessalonians were eagerly awaiting the Lord to deliver them from the wrath to come. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. And they knew and they were told by Paul in chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians that they were not destined for wrath. 
You see, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're no longer under his wrath. You're not destined for that. And they were told that. And then in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, we see that when Jesus Christ comes, he will bring the souls of those who have died in Christ. If you die today and you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, your body goes in the grave and everybody looks at that and says, you know, we're sad about that. But the real you goes to be with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And Christ will come with those who have fallen asleep first. Their bodies will be raised, they'll be glorified, and then those of us who are alive and remain at that time in Christ will be changed, will be glorified by the exertion of his power, Philippians chapter 3, and will be made and have bodies for eternity without sin. What a wonderful thing. That's what the Lord's going to do. He's going to deliver us and take us to a place that he has prepared for us, like he said in John 14, 1 and 6. And so with that in mind, these Thessalonians were being told that, hey, with regards to the rapture, no, you're in the day of the Lord. It's so bad. You're in God's wrath. And it was a false letter that had come, or by a spirit, a false prophet, or by a word, someone saying, hey, this is what Paul said. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians. Now we request you, brethren, this is the request, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. That's the rapture. It's gathering to him. Okay? He says that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us to the effect the day of the Lord has come. You see, because if someone says the day of the Lord has come, you missed God's deliverance from his wrath. That's a big deal if you're looking forward to his deliverance from God's wrath. And they could be shaken up. And so he's going to explain to them in our passage, hey, here is the things that must happen for that day to be here, and you're not in it. And we know from chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians that Christ is going to come and deliver us from that first. And so what does he say now in verse 3? Let no one deceive you in any way. We talked about this word deceive. There's one word in Greek to, to deceive, which speaks about, you know, leading someone astray. This is a word that speaks of being fully deceived, being completely seduced. It's the same word that was used to speak of Eve in 1 Timothy 2 in the garden, completely seduced, completely deceived. It's the same thing that happened to the Corinthians that Satan was trying to do in 2 Corinthians 11, to deceive them completely. And so he's saying, let no one in any manner, in any fashion, seduce you wholly. Don't let them do that. Don't let them do it. And how are they not to let them do it? By holding to the truth. And he's going to remind them of that. Understand the truth of God so that when the bad guys come in, twist it, you can stand firm in the truth so you won't be shaken up. Like I shared earlier in chapter 2, verse 15, So then, brethren, the summary, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or letter from us. That's from Paul the Apostle. Hold firm to it. So don't let anyone deceive you in any way concerning the day of the Lord, and thus that you missed the coming of our Lord for you in our gathering together. And notice what he says. How might someone deceive them? He says, let no one deceive you in any way, for it, that is, the day of the Lord, which is what they were trying to deceive them about, saying, hey, it's come. He's saying, hey, the day of the Lord, it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Don't get so easily shaken. Don't get so easily shaken because it can't happen 
unless the apostasy has come and the man of lawlessness has been revealed. And that has not happened. You're not going to go through it. They're lying to you that the day of the Lord has come. They're lying, trying to shake you up. Don't let anyone wholly deceive you. And he goes on to explain a little more about this son of destruction, verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God and object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Back when you were three weeks old in the faith, I was telling you this stuff. I was telling you deep truths. Don't ever believe the false teachers that say, oh, they're baby Christians, we can't share very much. We need to put it down low for them. No, share the Word of God. They'll get used to it. They'll start absorbing it. They'll understand it. Paul says, don't you remember I told you these things? Now, regarding the day of the Lord, I shared a lot about that last week. That is the day of God's wrath. It is the day of His judgment upon this earth for sin. It is the day that Yahweh, the Lord, takes back what is rightfully His. And yet within that, he uses that day of his fierce wrath against the nations, as we saw in Zechariah chapter 14 earlier, to also use it as a purging influence to purge out sin in Israel to the point that two-thirds die, but one-third remains, Zechariah 13, and then he saves all Israel through that purging. That's another part of it. So the day of the Lord, we talked about that last time, but that day of the Lord happens, and I shared this, and I gave you an overview last time also of end times events. I'm not going to go through that. That would take the whole sermon if I did. But that day of the Lord happens in what we call the tribulation, and it's a seven-year tribulation. It's the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble, which in the point the day of the Lord happens the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and then the second three and a half, the great tribulation, as we will say. So you say, wait a second, okay, so we believers will be taken away, but then what happens? Well, then there's this seven-year tribulation, which is the day of the Lord is in that, intertwined in that, culminating with Christ coming at the end of that and establishing his kingdom. But you say, where do you get this seven-year stuff? I'm told there's no such thing as that. Well, let's take a look, because I want to show from the Word of God where we get our understanding of what's going on, because it's very important, because all the false Reformed theology guys give you twisted scriptures where they share one scripture out of context, and they don't share it in light of the Old Testament, scripture interpreting scripture. So let's take a look. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 9. As I mentioned, i got a lot to share, and so don't worry about having to take notes and write everything down. Just absorb what the point is from the Word of God. Daniel chapter 9. Now in Daniel, the first six chapters are historical, basically historical in nature, although there's the dreams and things that we see that give us some prophetic stuff, but the second part is prophetic. And we have the reality of these portions in Daniel which give us great understanding of what the future will be. Now, Daniel 9.23, if you read 1 through 22, it's a great portion because Daniel is actually reading through Jeremiah and he realizes the 70 years is up. That time in which God was disciplining Israel is up. And he is confessing his sin and confessing the sin of Israel. And that moves the Lord to move and share some truth with him here. Daniel 9.23, at the beginning of your supplications... The command was issued. This is an angel sharing this. This is great, right? You get a little insight into heaven, don't you? 
when you began praying, a command was issued. Isn't that great? Command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. This is an angel speaking to Daniel. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now he's going to explain. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. How ironic that this prophecy comes right as Daniel is realizing their discipline is over. Very interesting. The prophecy of ultimately then their salvation and the time that is aligned with that. So he says here, 70 weeks. Now, the Jews understood the terminology. The term week spoke of a group of seven, a week of things. When I have a week, we think of a group of days, seven days. This is weeks in weeks of years, and the context will prove that out. So a week here is seven years, weeks of years, and you'll see that as he talks about it. The Jews understood that. So that would be 490 years, are decreed. Now, the Jewish year given was 360 days, not 65. So if you're trying to figure it out, make sure you use 360 days. So we have weeks of years. So God decreed something, 70 weeks of years, for something to happen. To finish, he says here, for your people, which is really important, and the holy cities. For Jews, it's not for Gentiles, it's for the Jews. This is for the Jews. Very important to understand this. Seventy weeks. And he says here, for your holy city to finish the transgression, to end transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and thus seal up vision and prophecy to anoint the most holy place. And obviously to anoint it would be to have it function the way it should be with Christ on the throne, as we're going to see. He's saying 70 weeks to end Israel's sin by bringing atonement and everlasting righteousness. You see, if you read the Old Testament, I think you will get a very good picture that Israel was very disobedient and very sinful. And there was almost rarely a time where Israel obeyed the Lord apart from people disobeying. And we see there was always just a remnant. They were God's chosen people, so God was faithful to them. Like the ladies are going through Ruth, and part of that talks to the judges You know, God, even though they would crowd when things are bad, God was faithful to his covenant to them, even though many of them were not truly saved. And Israel is walking in sin right now, in unbelief. Does Israel right now in the land, do they believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. Now, there's a remnant. So he's saying 490 years have been decreed by God to bring in Israel's salvation and to bring about the holy place functioning the way it's supposed to function with the Lord there to anoint the holy place. And so as we look at this, notice in the next verse, verse 25, So you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. What's seven plus 62? 69, right? And he says here, and it will be built again with plaza, moat, even in times of distress. So he's saying, hey, here's where this clock starts from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Filled with blood
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.